Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. What is the body? What's it for? We've all got them. They're kind of silly. But what are they for? Are they, is the body a prison from which you must escape? A slave driver from which you must be freed? Is it a stage for displaying your true inner self? A trophy for showing off to others? Is it just an animal compelled by instinct? Or is it a, a playground, a toy for the entertainment of yourself and others? The church in Corinth answered this question with a series of slogans, we might call them theological memes, that stated their conclusions about the body. They are the words in quotation marks at the beginning of your passage. All is lawful. That is, they can do with their, with their bodies what they please. Why? Well, because the body doesn't really matter. That's the third one. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. Doesn't really matter. The logic is, is kind of easy to understand once you get the, how it works. If kosher food laws don't matter anymore, if we're freed from the law that regulated what we put into our body, well, then we're free from the laws about what we do with our body because God's going to destroy both. And like most theological memes, these are misleading at best and simply wrong at worst. The gospel, these Christians were arguing, empties bodily life of significance and therefore freed them, these Corinthians said, to get what they needed wherever they needed, including at the local red light district. But Paul is not amused by their shenanigans. He responds to these memes with his own rich and beautiful theology of the body. Summed up in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Read that again. The Lord is for the body, and the body is for the Lord. So one will not be destroyed, but raised, because the body is for the Lord. I want you to think about that. It's not just your soul, not just your spirit. Your body is what Jesus was born and lived and died to save. And so Paul thinks, far from emptying bodily life of significance, the gospel saturates bodily life with significance and value in all of its aspects, including that aspect of physical intimacy. Now, 1 Corinthians is great, as we've kind of been studying with the students this uh, last fall. It, it's what we call applied theology. Paul is not simply offering a book of doctrinal truths, but he's giving an exposition of Christian wisdom both an exposition, exposition of the truth and an application of it to show how the gospel shines into every area of life. Last week, Pastor Bruick talked about how the Epiphany lesson was about the gospel shining into all the darkness of our world. And here, Paul shines the light of the gospel on our bodily life. And what's nice about this is that often being applied theology, the application's right there in the text. We don't have to search very far for it. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Flee porneia, which is the Greek word Paul uses. And it's his broad catch-all word for every form of sexual expression that's outside of the sixth commandment. That is outside God's design between a man and a woman in lifelong marriage. So that's your application. Flee porneia. We're done. Go in peace. No, you wish. It's not enough simply to be told to flee from something. You need to be told why. I can't simply tell my children to flee from clowns. I have to explain why they might be dangerous. 
So my goal today is not simply to repeat the Sixth Commandment and wag my finger at you. My hope is that you see today, perhaps anew, how faith in the gospel transforms the meaning of bodily life in all its aspects, including physical intimacy. Now, before I go any further, I want to acknowledge that this is, the text is, and therefore the sermon is kind of in the the PG-13 category. And not all here are prepared for these ideas, and some actually carry some pretty heavy trauma in this area. So I know this is difficult to talk about. I have children here too. I know and love people who are survivors of assault. And so I'm, I'm aware that this is a challenging subject. And I know some people will tell me, and actually have told me, that topics like this should be saved for Bible study. And I simply disagree. Not least because about 15% of you come to Bible study, and 100% of you struggle with this in some capacity or another. And that's the simple reality. And if we're actually going to meet to talk about God's word and proclaim the whole counsel of God, we have to wrestle with this. So here's what I've done. I've written out this sermon, which is why I'm going to apologize for reading it more than I, than I should. I've written it out in a way that I believe is acceptable for young ears, and then I asked my wife to read it and give me her approval as to whether she's okay with my kids listening to it. And the other thing that I want us to do today is we're going to stick really close to Paul's text. So I want you to have it out right in front of you, because we hold this church to the conviction that God's word is liberating and life-giving, that the light of Christ shines real light into specific dark places of our lives, even the darkest. And so as we go through the text, I want to remind you of those questions Pastor Bruick puts before you each week. What did I hear? What does God's word have to say about it? And how does this shape my life in the next seven days? So let's dive in. The first thing we've got to see is this passage proves conclusively that Paul was from Minnesota. Each of his three points are driven home with a resounding, don't you know? Look at verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16 and 19 begin with the same question. Don't you know? This passage is probably why St. Paul, the city, got its name. (laughs) What's nice about this is that if you get lost today, just remember that Paul is from Minnesota, and each of the points of the sermon follows these don't you knows that Paul lays out because they are a point in his argument that illumines three things. How the gospel gives astonishing significance to our bodies. It gives astonishing meaning and power to human sexuality and life-giving purpose to freedom. The gospel gives significance to our bodies, power and meaning to our sexuality, and life-giving purpose to our freedom. Or to say it another way, Paul's response to the Corinthians' memes is to say, you guys don't even know what bodies are. So you don't even know what physical intimacy is. And so you don't know what to do with your freedom. And this is a gospel we need to unpack, because while we might not have a red light district in Seward, there's just as much confusion today as there was back then in Corinth. So verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And the word members here is, is kind of an unfortunate translation because it's an, basically a dead metaphor. The Greek word mele means literally body part. Y'all are body parts of Jesus. One scholar translates it, don't you know that your bodies are Christ's limbs and organs? Now, note that. Not just your soul, not your spirit, not your community. Your bodies are body parts of the risen Jesus. To say that this is astonishing is an understatement. It's deeply mysterious. It's shocking and surprising, and it is meant to be. Christian bodies relate to Jesus' body in the way you relate to your fingers or your eyes or your nose. They are you. 
We are the risen body of Jesus. And what's important is that Paul, this was the very first lesson Paul learned from Jesus. Paul, when he was once a persecutor of the church named Saul, and he had watched the murder and supervised the murder of Stephen by stoning. His very first words he hears from Jesus is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So that Paul would draw forever the recognition that in stoning the body of Stephen, he was stoning the body of Jesus. And he never tired of fleshing out the implications of what that meant for the life of the church. And here he applies it to the Corinthian memes. So far from, so, so far from being trash destined for destruction, your body is destined to be raised because your body right now participates in the risen body of Jesus. It overlaps with it. It is it. So for the Corinthians, he's saying, you guys don't even know what you are. And this confronts us with an important reality. Your account of what we are, what you are, shapes what you do. Identity shapes purpose. We might be less inclined to think of the body as trash destined for disposal than maybe as simply as mammals, meat computers driven by instinct, the basic biological need to survive and pass on our genes. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so... Let's do what mammals do, right? That's a little pre-your generation, I think, for the college students in here. There doesn't need to be any morality attached to it, we say. It's just as natural and biological as eating. But you're not a mere mammal. Your body was made to participate in the risen body of Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ, you're a part of it. So to call Jesus your Lord, to be a Christian, is to say that he lives in me. It is to say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me in a way more real than I can understand. And that means that Christ goes with you everywhere you go, even to the red light district. And that's the point Paul wants them to see. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No. Meganoito. Never. So the Corinthians don't know what their bodies are, so they fail to know what to do with them. But they also fail to know how bodies relate to one another. Look, look again at verse 15. Literally translated, it says, Shall I take Christ's body parts and make them body parts of a prostitute? That's weird. He doesn't just say take them to or touch, but make them parts of. And that is, makes it sound like whatever's going on, it's like two things are becoming one thing, which is exactly Paul's next point. Just as bodies are more than bodies, physical intimacy is more than physical, don't you know? Verse 16, don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. They don't even know what's happening when they are joined to someone. The Greek word Paul uses here is the same one used in Genesis 2.24 in its Greek translation. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife which means exactly what you think it means. He's saying that God designed physical intimacy to affect a new reality, to make two things become one thing. If we can say it a different way, Paul is saying that God's design for physical intimacy is not just the contact of skin, but the union of persons, the fastening and uniting of two selves to one another. And this flies directly in the face of the most dominant lie in our culture about this subject which is built on the technological advances of birth control, which says that physical intimacy can be without consequence. That you can have multiple partners without effect on who you are. But Paul thinks that is hopelessly naive. Wow. Is this still on? Yeah. Paul thinks that is hopelessly naive. 
because it fails to reckon with the reality of what God made. God designed it to have tremendous creative power. And that's why he made this institution called marriage, to protect that power and us within it. God knew you can't repeatedly glue two selves together and then rip them apart without damaging them. And so he made marriage that context where two can become one in a real and life-giving way. So physical intimacy can unite two selves without dissolving either of them into one another. And thus, it serves as a powerful image for the way you are united to Christ by faith, without losing who you are. And yes, that's exactly the next parallel Paul draws. Note in verse 16, he spoke of being joined to a prostitute. In verse 17, he says, but he who is joined to, same word, the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And that's weird. That's really weird. But it's actually not. It's just an analogy. Like we talked about in Christmas, the analogy of God's jealousy. All analogies have something they are like and something they are unlike. So Paul here says that there's an analogy between marital union and the believer's union with Jesus. Like husband and wife are joined together and become one body, so by faith you are joined to Christ and become one in spirit with him. And Paul is just participating in a long history of Old Testament imagery that uses marital imagery to refer to the way Yahweh relates to his people. So Paul is not trying to creep the Corinthians out. He's saying this. The very closest forms of unity you can imagine, your own unity to your hands, your face, the unity that a husband and wife have in marriage, those are portraits of the unity you have in your bodily life with Jesus. And it's that unity you rip when you engage in porneia. So run for your life. Flee it. Don't buy it. Don't sell it. Don't flirt with it. Don't walk down its street. Don't let it linger on your doorstep. Run for your life. It is a monster that seeks to devour you. Every other sin, he says in verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that the sixth commandment is somehow greater than the others and it's worse to break that one than the others? No, I don't think that's what Paul means here. This is a hotly debated verse, and there's all sorts of interpretations about what he does mean, and I can't solve them. But I don't think Paul here is saying that the Sixth Commandment is somehow more important than the others. Just as what he is saying is that just as physical intimacy is not a mere bodily function, it's a giving of yourself to another, so when you sin against that, you're giving something, your body, to someone else, and that thing doesn't belong to you. Because your body belongs to Jesus. It is his temple. It is the temple of his spirit. That's the end of verse 18. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Note again, he's not saying here that your soul is a temple. Your spirit or mind are temples. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So back to our original question. What's the body? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in you the same way the glory of God dwelt in Israel. And while there's a whole bunch we could say on this, I want you just to go back to our second question, which is, what is the body for? Well, it's for the, to make God available to other people. It's to make the glory of God accessible to Israel. That's why they had a temple, so they could go to one place and find God. So your body in Christ becomes a place where other people can go to find the glory of God. And this is tremendous direction for our freedom as human beings. 
Because we tend to think of freedom, like these Corinthians, as freedom from stuff, freedom from constraint, freedom from rules. We think of it as autonomy, absolute self-rule. I get to do what I want as long as I'm not hurting someone else. You do you, as we say. But Paul's whole point is that that's not even freedom. It's destructive, and it's ultimately enslaving. Christian freedom is not absolute self-rule. It's not freedom from all things, but freedom for something. The freedom to fulfill your purpose as a temple of the living God. That's your purpose, and that guides your freedom into what is beneficial, what is life-giving, and what is liberating. That's the truth Paul wants them to see. Christians know that Jesus took on a human body, an entire human nature, that he might give it up as a purchase price for our own bodies. So that each person who is united to him becomes a place where the glory of God can shine. And knowing this leads you to a whole different set of theological means. Not all is lawful, but what is life-giving? What is beneficial? What is liberating? How do my body and life and the way I use them point to that person that Christ is? How does the way I treat other bodies point to who Jesus is? How do I, in my place, glorify God with my body? It's a terrifying and awesome reality to know that you, yourself, in your whole being, are the limbs and organs of the risen Savior. To know that that sexuality is not simply matter, the union of things, but of persons. And to know yourselves as temples of the living God, where God's glory shines to others. It is a destiny and an ambition beyond any of us that none of us could deserve or achieve for ourselves. It is a gift solely and completely given by Jesus. And that's really important because I know that a lot of you are thinking, I'm simply not any of this. This does not describe me in any sense. I've fallen so far short of it. I'm enslaved to it. I'm haunted by it. I've failed and fallen in so many times and ways. How can any of this be true of me? Because Jesus said so, don't you know? Jesus promised. I want to close by directing your attention to one final thing. At no point in this passage does Paul address these people who are going to prostitutes, literal prostitutes, as people who are outside Christ. In fact, his whole argument falls apart if they are outside Christ. He's calling them back to faithfulness. He knows that they've been baptized into Christ and live in union with him. That Christ has claimed them body, mind, and soul as his own. And only on that basis does he make his appeal. So when he says, flee porneia, he's saying, flee to Christ. Flee from those things that enslave and destroy. And flee to that one who promised to liberate. Cling to the gospel where Jesus promised it would be. Say, Jesus is my Lord, not my porneia, not my sin. Jesus gives me my identity, not my failures and rebellion. And if your conscience refuses to let you believe that, then go to confession. Go let the light of Christ shine into that dark place of your life. Seek a brother or sister in the faith who can console and support and guide and counsel you. Come to the altar and take in your hand the the literal body of the Lord under bread and wine and say, I was bought with this price. The Lord is for my body and my body is for the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have created us for a future beyond our imaginations, for a future beyond our ability to ask or think, certainly beyond our ability to deserve. In Christ, you've won this future for us. 
back from our rebellion, back from our idolatry, back from our porneia. And you've given it to us now as a gift by faith. You give it at the waters of baptism. You give it by the gracious word of your forgiveness. You give it here at this altar. Help us, the Lord, to live in it and believe in it. That by your spirit we might glorify you in all that we say and do. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen.